Would you please open your copy of God's Word to the 26th chapter of Matthew? I would like to begin reading at the 30th verse. Matthew chapter 26. Let's briefly pray before beginning to read at verse 30. Our Father, it is with great joy that we, who know the resurrected Christ, now turn to this solemn text and remember the cost of our redemption. And we ask that as your people, we who love the world will recognize that we love others because you have loved us, and we love you because you first loved us and have sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Melt our hearts, grow us in grace, and help us to think upon these things not only on Good Friday, but all through the year, that we may value him who loved us and gave himself for us and live by his grace alone. For it is through Christ who shed his blood for our sins that we pray these things, asking the Spirit of God to bless now this brief exposition of your holy word. Amen. Matthew 26, beginning with verse 30. This is the word of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell down on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Beloved in the Lord, 
If you and I are to be saved from our awful sins, there is only one way in which that salvation could happen. God himself must assume human nature and go to a cross and pay the penalty of our sins. And this, marvelously, God has done for us as people. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He is fully man without sin. But human nature, even without sin, is weak. And we see in a special way the true humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ in this text of Scripture. This text leads us to think about what it costs the Lord to save us and to make us to be his children. Sometimes I hear Christians talk about Gethsemane. They will go through hard and very difficult experiences and they will say, this pastor is my Gethsemane. And I completely understand what they are saying, but I cringe every time I hear it. For there is only one who could go through Gethsemane. For there is only one who could go to the cross. You will never go through Gethsemane because only Christ could go through Gethsemane. And in this text, we see Jesus' perspective on what he was about to do as he went to that cross. Taking all the gospel accounts of Gethsemane into view, as we read here in Matthew, Jesus prays three times that the cup might pass from him. He will go to the cross, and he will drink that cup. He will go to the cross alone. And so we see here the cost that was required to pay the penalty of our sins. And first of all, here in Gethsemane, will you see the emotional cost to our Lord? Gethsemane, you may remember, means oil press. But Jesus himself is being put into the press of the wrath of Almighty God. Matthew might intend for us to see the significance in the fact that Jesus prays in a garden before he goes to the cross. In the garden, Adam said, my will, not yours. And now in Gethsemane, the last Adam says, your will, not mine. And Jesus exhorts his disciples to pray and took Peter and James and John with him. And there the Lord Jesus begins his agonizing prayer. Is this not the fact that we most note as we read this passage? The agony of our Savior as he knelt before his father in Gethsemane. There the Lord Jesus begins to demonstrate his emotional stress that is almost indescribable. The agony is so great. In Matthew 26, in this passage, in verse 37, we read that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And the first verb is from lupeo, which means pain or grief. The second verb from admoneo, that means extreme mental distress. In verse 38, there's another term that is used, perilupos, that really means grief upon grief. My soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Luke and Mark add to this. For Luke tells us in Luke twenty-two forty-four that Jesus was in agony. In Mark 14, 33, we read that he was very distressed because he is coming in the grip of the shuddering horror of facing this dreadful prospect of the cross that is before him. Now, it's not important that you remember the words. I want you to take to heart the cumulative effect of these verbs. 
that our Savior was burdened down, broken down in agony before the Father as he prays. The horror faced by the Savior was unbounded. Luke tells us that an angel was sent to strengthen him, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Calvin comments, such deadly sweat could only have flowed from a dire and unusual horror, and indeed that is true. His entire body shows the bottomless distress of his soul before the Lord. Now we ask the question, why? Why this agony? Why this pain? Why this distress? Well, of course, we look to the physical suffering of Christ. And I'm always eager that we not minimize the physical suffering of Christ as he goes to the cross. That suffering indeed was intense and that suffering was indeed profound and great. But his physical sufferings are far from the most profound arguments for his prayer before the Father in agony in Gethsemane. I think there are two reasons that Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow as he prays before the Father in Gethsemane. The first is this. Jesus knew his feelings of overwhelmedness would intensify on the cross. Was he overwhelmed in Gethsemane as he anticipated the cross? Going to the cross, forsaken of the Father, he would cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's very significant. He cries in verse 39 and in verse 42 here in Matthew, My Father, if it be possible. My Father, if this cannot pass. And so he cries out to his Father. In drinking the cup, Jesus lost his sense of intimacy with the Father. He was forsaken that you who now believe might never be forsaken. But I think there is yet a more profound reason that Jesus, in agony of soul, prays before his Father here in Gethsemane. And that reason is because Jesus, who is overwhelmed, looking to the cross, is holy. He is holy, sinless, undefiled, separate from sinners. We scarcely know what that means. Because we are sinners, we scarcely understand what holiness means. We see in Gethsemane the revulsion of his soul from sin as he ponders what it will mean that he, the Holy One, will bear our sin. For that is what the cross is all about. Sin-bearing, substitution, standing in the place of sinners. He's entering the vestibule of full exposure to the wrath of Almighty God. Did you note this quote from Zechariah in verse 31? You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That is God, Jehovah speaking, striking the shepherd, unsheathing his sword, thrusting it into the bosom of his own son for our sakes. Who is this in Gethsemane? It is God who created, God who spoke and brought the worlds to be. Jesus is God who assumed human nature. It is this Jesus before whom the angels cry, according to Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is the one who prays. And now his holy soul shudders to think 
that he will take on our sin by imputation. Let me put it to you another way. When we look to God through faith in Christ, we always find a gracious God. Always you will look through Christ to God and find a gracious God. But God the Son, knowing that he would bear the sins of all of his people through all of the ages, will see no gracious God. God the Son saw no gracious God toward him. His death satisfies God's wrath toward us. But only because to him the wrath was poured out in full as our substitute can you and I know a gracious God. We are covered from wrath because for him there was no covering from wrath. He was abandoned that we might not be abandoned. He was cursed that the curse for us might be removed. That is what God thought of his son on the cross. That is why in Gethsemane our Lord was overwhelmed. On the cross Christ is sin in the Father's eyes and he knows to where he goes. That's the emotional cost. But will you also think with me of the cost of the sacrifice itself? The prayer for the cup to pass as we find it in verses 39 and 42. Father, he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And verse 44 says he prayed a third time saying the same words. The cost. There are many explanations for this prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane, and I want to set them all aside because I think they're all inadequate. Don't misunderstand me. This prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane was all along a prayer of trust, but he was praying in all of his agony in his soul about the cross. Any explanation that attempts to set aside the cross is a wrong explanation. It is abhorrent to him that his holy body, his holy soul, would bear sin. He feels the cost of sacrifice, the cost of being the sinless substitute bearing the sins of sinners. And so he prays, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What is meant by this cup? Well, there are many Old Testament allusions to the cup. The cup of blessing, of course, but not here. The cup of the wrath of God. You heard it in the 75th Psalm, read by our elder just a little while ago. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. That's the cup that is now held out to the Holy Son of God to drink. My favorite illusion is in Jeremiah 25, when Jeremiah had been preaching for 20 years, and now the year is 604 BC. The Battle of Carchemish has taken place, and that means that there is nothing to stop Nebuchadnezzar from coming and taking Judah. There is no one to stop the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar. This is when Daniel is taken off into captivity. Jeremiah, as prophet, passes the cup representatively to those to whom he preaches. 
And he says, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Now I ask, were you in the crowd when the preacher preached and held out the cup of wrath? Would you have taken that cup, even figuratively, to drink it down? I dare say you would not. Jesus takes the cup of the wrath of Almighty God from his loving Father's hands. And here in Gethsemane, he says, I will do it. I will drink it down. Jonathan Edwards makes the most profound observation that in Gethsemane, Jesus then had a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. For what was the human nature of Christ to such a mighty wrath as this? It was in itself without the supports of God but a feeble worm of dust. And so Jesus prays in all of the fullness of his sinless but real humanity. And he is overwhelmed with the thought of the wrath of God and what it means to bear it. So the cup is an awful image, isn't it? It is an awful image because it represents the wrath of God. But it is an awful image for another reason. Because back there in Psalm 75 and in these other passages, who drinks the cup? It is the wicked who drink the cup. Those of us who deserve to drink the cup. But here, the holy, sinless, undefiled Jesus who deserved no such thing for you and for me determines to drink down the cup. One of the old Dutch theologians said, one would need to have been in hell for some time in order to understand what it is that is tearing Jesus apart in the garden. The awfulness of his situation is that God recedes from him. Any attempt to understand the meaning of Gethsemane is sacrilege and folly unless it discovers the explanation in the almighty God. The costly drinking of the costly cup. What does that mean for you? What does this mean for us? This prayer, it was a prayer of resignation. It was a prayer actually of delighting in the will of God. Not my will, but thine be done. Lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I come to do thy will, O God. That was our Savior's heart. His holy soul could not but shrink from the wrath of God. But his holy soul could not help but submit to the wrath of God for our sakes. What is the conclusion that we should draw? That the cross was unavoidable. That if there were some other way in which we sinners could be saved, that way would have been taken. That the cross was unavoidable if the Father was to be obeyed that the cross was unavoidable if God was to be glorified, that the cross was unavoidable if his wrath were removed from sinners. What does it mean? Well, we saw it in Psalm 22 on Sunday. 
It means how awful sin must be. That it requires the Son of God to come into this world to save us. How awful the wrath of God must be. The punishment of sin must be commensurate with the gravity of sin. And that is why it requires the second person of the Trinity, God himself, to pay the price of our sin. And so he took, yes, he took upon himself my hell that I might not experience hell. I mentioned Edwards a few moments ago. Edwards points out something significant here, though. Sinners in hell will experience the wrath of God differently than did Christ. He experienced the fullness of the wrath of God, his infinite displeasure, his infinite nature giving to his finite sufferings infinite value. But he did not deserve that punishment. We did. He did not feel the gnawing of a guilty conscience. The sinner in hell will. He felt no torment of inward lust and corruption. The sinner in hell will. God never hated his son. Christ did not suffer despair. Christ's sufferings were infinitely worthy to pay the price as if for eternity, but he did not suffer for eternity. But those in hell will. And so if someone here is lost this day, if you could but sense your danger, not having trusted in Christ alone for your redemption, you would fall in bloody sweat and cry out in amazement. If you could but see what awaits. How dreadful were Christ's sufferings. This is no martyr's death. His full revulsion towards sin, and yet he bears it. And all of this means, think about it, how great the love of the Father toward us. How great the love of the Son toward us. How great the love of the one God and three persons to redeem us. That he would take down the wrath of God in gulps, bearing the fierceness of God's wrath for the love that he had for us And not one thimble full of wrath, not one drop of wrath remains for those for whom he drank this cup. In view of sin and its stark rebellion and even knowing his own disciples in gratitude, yet he loved us and he loved them and he went to the cross. That's love. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable love. And Christ's obedience to the Father is amazing. Think of it. It is through his obedience to the law and his paying its price that we are saved. Will you indulge me if I quote Edwards once more? Jesus was the most wonderful instance of submission to God's sovereignty that ever was. If God lays his hand upon us in some acute pain of body, how ready are we to be discontented and impatient? When the innocent Son of God, who deserved no suffering, could quietly submit to sufferings, inconceivably great and say it over and over God's will be done had he failed all would have failed but he could not fail and he did not fail and believer the Lord God will not pour out his wrath that true that that true that awful wrath that comes from 
His attribute of justice. The Lord God will not pour out His wrath upon you because He has poured it out on His Son, our last Adam, our great high priest in your place. The judicial wrath of God against believers is spent. Spent. Period. There remains no wrath for you. I've appreciated these words of Charles Spurgeon. How loathsome I am in the sight of God. I feel myself only fit to be cast into the lowest hell, and I wonder that God has not long ago cast me there. But I go into Gethsemane, and I peer under the gnarled olive trees, and I see my Savior. Yes, I see him wallowing on the ground in anguish, and hear such groans come from him as never came from human breast before. I look upon the earth and see it red with his blood, while his face is smeared with gory sweat. And I say to myself, My God, my Savior, what aileth thee? I hear him reply, I am suffering for thy sin. And then I take comfort. For while I would fain have spared my Lord such anguish, now that the anguish is over, I can understand how Jehovah can spare me because he smote his son in my stead. Verse 45, then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. You see, that's the appointed hour, people of God. The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Too late to join me in prayer now. Perhaps he even sees the torches of those who would take him coming up the Kidron Valley. And Jesus will go on. On to the cross. Jesus will go on. All alone.